This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. The war in Ukraine has tanks in the streets, but don't miss the invisible weapons. Hackers from both sides are launching online attacks. Is digital war violence? It's device and virtue. Hello, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I am Adam. And I'm Chris. Hey, Adam, today's episode is about digital war. Digital war. Or or violence or... Virtual war. Well, just being inspired by Ukraine, right? Have you been watching? Oh, man. Yeah, I have. When all of that was coming down, I I was really moved with just... I don't know, not just sympathy, but just like choked up about just the the sheer injustice of it, the sheer like wanton, brazen attack that it has been. It feels insane, right? And like, I hadn't watched a lot of video, you know, I like read almost all my news, like yeah. just sort of online. But I think last night I put on like PBS NewsHour and their whole first 14 minute segment was Ukraine, right? Really? And and they're just showing pictures of like things blown up, of ho- like a house like yeah. with a rocket like exploded right in the middle. Yeah. And I've seen YouTube clips of like the really, really in- most intense pictures, even bodies lying on the side mm. of the road of families and yeah. things. And you just go, this is crazy. But the big story has been the digital war, the hacking war between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. Early on, it was very much a war of visibility, but also invisibility. <laughs> ooh, 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 invisibility. Here we go. So, like, Wired Magazine wrote a whole story about this a few weeks ago yeah. about the hacking war. Yeah. And I think one of the questions that immediately came to mind, and that's what I sent you, was, is digital war the same as physical war? You know, like, is it the yeah. same? Is it right and wrong the same way? Right. Is it violent? Yeah. Can you even use the word violence with, like, hacking? Right, right. Well, and what's interesting, too, is a lot of the strategies and methods that are part of cyber warfare, we'll call it, (laughs) are experiences that we've all had. We've all experienced, not to the same degree, but to a lesser degree, we experience some of these same like passwords getting stolen, information getting stolen. Yeah, for people that are trying to make a buck or steal money, but now you get into like trying to take over our government and like right. some really intense things. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I love I love that the word cyber is still around in the cyber <laughs> world. Like, yeah. Cybersecurity, like cyber warfare, yeah, yeah. Cyber, cyber still exists. Cyber defense, you yeah. know. We Actually, don't really talk about cyberspace anymore. No, because like it's a term that. from like the year 2000. You know? <laughs> it's like, for it's sure. Like there's robots in cyberspace and now like, the, but they still use, and I think we, well, we've, you know, you know now like when someone's writing cyberspace, it's, it's it's a guy in his 80s that's <laughs> just figured out how to use Facebook, right? But like for some reason, the defense industry still uses cyber war and that's become like sort of the standard over there, which is crazy. Well, and we're recording this shortly after the Kentucky Derby where there was a horse named Cyberknife. What? And Cyberknife <laughs> refers to a cancer tool. 
What? Yeah, that's no, true. You watched the Kentucky Derby? <laughs> did you watch the Kentucky Derby? No, you watched that? Oh my gosh. Did you not see it? I did. I saw the meme afterwards of that horse like coming from behind or something. It was inspiring. That's how much I know about it. I was inspired. I know by there's that horses. Horse, man. That's literally all Rich I know. Rich <laughs> strike forever. <laughs> so, is that, did you just, no. all did right. you just pronounce a hashtag about yeah, the Kentucky yeah, yeah, Derby? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so cyber hasn't died. But <laughs> we're naming our horses after him. <laughs> but yeah, cyber warfare, cybersecurity. Cyber is still around, and we're going to get into it. Let's start with a guy named, and we're pronouncing Russian and Ukrainian names. Yikes. Let's start with the guy named Mikhailo Fedorov. Chris, who is Mikhailo Fedorov? Right. He, <laughs> this guy is the the Minister of Digital Transformation for <laughs> Ukraine, right? Uh, like like a cabinet secretary. Right, right. That but, sounds like a position at a church. <laughs> Ministry of Digital Transformation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's the Ministry of Digital Transformation, but he's 31 years old. Wow. His previous job was he was in a digital marketing startup. <laughs> and he's sort of cool. I watched him on YouTube. So where he comes from is the Zelensky campaign. President Zelensky is right. the president of Ukraine. Like we've all learned about him recently, right? He was a comedian originally. Right. And then he ran for president. And I guess there was a little bit more to it than that. He had actually been in another elected position before that. But Mikhailo, he gets hired to run the digital part of the campaign right. to help get Zelensky elected. So he does that. Right. And like that's cool hire the young tech guy to run right. the campaign and he right. runs like facebook ads obama did the same thing yeah yeah right? no exactly right yeah. it was known for that he won the presidential election by 73 percent of the vote and one of his big promises for the campaign was they were going to build a new government app for your phone okay where you could do all these government stuff like have a digital version of your driver's license right you know like get, duh things that we're all like why aren't we doing why aren't we here? doing this yeah. my gosh can i just tell you i like I'm trying to renew my passport. And right now, the U.S. way to renew your passport is you have to print out forms, which you know me with, like, I don't even understand how to do this. Yeah, but you own a printer and I don't. So <laughs> well, yeah, let's, let's I bought get one. into that. You have to, like, hand sign this thing. You have to go get a photo. There's literally no way to upload a photo to the website. Right? You have to put it all in You have envelope. to go to Walgreens and have them take a photo <laughs> well, for no, $14 when you get other photos for, like, 25 cents. Well, no, here's what I did, actually. Mm. Sidetrack. I decided to take one on my phone, which they said you can do. Oh. They have an online photo checker on the federal website. You upload it. It checks it because there's like your chin is supposed to be like this many inches from the bottom. So whatever. <laughs> so I uploaded it. It said it was fine. I printed it out at Walgreens. I did it for a dollar because if you tell them you're printing a four by six, they just charge you a dollar, not $14. And then, right. I, and then I hand cut it. Okay. This was supposed to be like a hack I learned online. Put it on. <laughs> it had to order a cashier's check from my bank, which my bank is no. like, what? Like, literally, you can't pay for it online either. And in the world of like PayPal, put all this in an envelope, took it to the post office, sent it away. Four weeks later, I got it back. I'm like, that was pretty fast. They said it was going to be eight weeks. Pulled it out, and there's a letter saying, oh, we no. rejected your photo. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so my oh. hack didn't work. And I'm even more mad because my government is dumb. Oh, man. <laughs> it was snail mail government. Anyway, right. Ukraine, Ukraine is way ahead of us is the point. <laughs> yeah, he did this promise, and they did it. They started rolling out this app like right away, right. which is really fascinating. They did all sorts of new things. Like This whole government is like they're in their 30s and 20s. Then like I guess they have this system where they appoint governors of different cities okay it's not like here like where like you vote for all the mayors but either way the president is responsible for sort of appointing them that's how it works interesting and and so 
instead of the normal way of doing it, he put up a Facebook poll for the city. No joke. And he's like, which three of these do you guys want? And they voted for the, <laughs> the America, which no one had ever done before. And it wasn't like definitive, but he just wanted to get a sense of the direction and preferences of the people. Yeah, it wasn't binding, but then he appointed the person they sort of voted for. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, very tech forward thing. And then all of a sudden, Russia attacks. Which people think started on February 20th. Yeah. But... It may have actually started on January 14th, which is when dozens of government websites in Ukraine were hacked. Oh, really? Right. By Russia? Russia is the suspected hacker. So they defaced a bunch of government websites to sort of generate confusion and maybe cause distrust. Right. And that's over a month before Russia attacked with tanks and rolled into Ukraine with bombs. See, that's really interesting because one of the questions we have to attack today, attack today, ha, is whether maybe the start of the war should be considered right. January 14th. But the world doesn't think like that right now yet, right? Yeah. And that's sort of this big question, right? Are cyber attacks legitimate forms of warfare? Right. Do they qualify as we're under attack? Right. But what's interesting is on February 20th was the day that suddenly Mikhailo jumps on YouTube and puts out a message. Like a video message? A video message. Okay. Like he's standing in his, like just a living room and he says, essentially, we're under attack. Mm-hmm. And I need all my friends, all my social media marketers, my coders, my tech people right. to quickly join together to help. And he creates a volunteer tech army. Right. It's essentially like a guerrilla tactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All and- these people who are not officially part of the Ukrainian army are joining a Telegram. Yeah, so that's the next thing. So Telegram is an app. Have you used Telegram? I have I've, not used Telegram. I actually, I have it installed, of course, and you haven't tried it. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, actually, side note, Christianity Today magazine has started using Telegram to broadcast some of their articles. And the reason why right. is because, and this is why Ukraine started using Telegram, is Telegram is not a blocked app in Russia or Ukraine. It's secure, but it's also not blocked, and it's sort of much more popular. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a means of getting information into Russia. Yeah. People have been saying it's like a secure version of Twitter. You can sort of follow anyone. You, you can either chat back and forth more like WhatsApp, or you can just follow a channel more like Twitter and follow someone's stuff, but you, okay. you can't talk back. Okay. So they put like, what is it? Like 300,000 300,000 people. people in this channel. Right. If you want to join up to help attack Russia on right. Ukraine's behalf, you're part of the volunteer army. Right. And these are people working at tech companies, people who have done startups, people who are cybersecurity experts. But some of them are also just ordinary citizens who have been vouched for by others in the channel already. And not just Ukrainians, although they got like, they definitely got Ukrainians, right? But they also, they're Mm. in this 300,000 group, like it seems like there's people from around the world, like Americans and other people that want to just help on Ukraine's behalf. Right. So suddenly it's not just Ukrainians who are fighting their own war. They're actually enlisting the help of citizens. And you sort of want to almost use the word mercenaries, which is that's paid, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. Like I was thinking, These do, we, are have like a, volunteers, do we have a time in history where suddenly you could call an army from around the world to your defense? Right. It's like, no, this is sort of new. But then also like, yes, there is history of people going from other countries to go help fight. Right. But it was at the government level enlisting other government's armies to help them fight their battles. Not asking for like volunteer people to just show up, but right. Right. Crazy. So then he sends a letter for help. And who does he send it to? The president of the The, United States? (laughs) No, the president of Apple. (laughs) Tim Cook. United States of Apple. 
He says, Dear Tim, like on this letter, and actually we should post this on our website so people can see it. He says, The Russian Federation has carried out a deceptive and absolutely outrageous military attack on my country! Exclamation <laughs> point. He says, It's pretty sad. He's like, Just imagine in 2022, cruise missiles attack residential neighborhoods, kindergartens, and hospitals in the heart of Europe. And he says, I appeal to you to do everything possible to help protect Ukraine. And he's asking Apple to do that. He's like, would you stop supplying Apple services, products to the Russian Federation and block access to the app store? You're sincerely Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, Mikhailo Fedorov. And this is February 20th, the day that the tanks roll in. Isn't this fascinating? He also winds up tweeting and asking Google to stop stuff, Facebook to stop stuff, Meta, and all these companies wind up doing this. Right. These, these are the big tech companies. These aren't nation states, yeah. but they have sort of this right. power that they're the first ones you go to. Well, you don't, but you do if you're 20, 30 something, right? <laughs> what do you think about this? I have opinions, but... I mean, I guess to me is just an indicator of how big big tech is and what it means to control a media channel or a means of communication. Controlling that means of communication is incredibly powerful. And it's why when governments engage in war, they engage in propaganda. They are involved in not only the ground war, but also the war for people's minds and people's values and people's perspectives. Okay, yeah, because you're thinking about these guys as controlling like meta, Facebook controls these communication channels. But it's even more than communications. I mean, I agree with that. But also like they operate servers and they operate like the app stores, how you download and install stuff. And Apple and Google and Facebook pulling out their services like, Really, I mean, if everything stopped right now, we would feel immobilized. Right. I think this was a fascinating moment where this young government actually treated the tech companies as more powerful than most other nations. And they became, like what you just said, a nation state. There's no seat at the United Nations for like Mark Zuckerberg. Right. But the reality is, is he's more powerful than most of the people in that room. And the tradition is not like that. But these young folks didn't care. They're like, we're saving our country. We're going to go to who we see as powerful. And who we know as powerful is the tech companies. And they got the benefit. Yeah. By the way, side note for you. I was trying to think of, is there another time where a private company controlled things as powerfully as a big country? Okay. In the past. And I realized there was. Can you guess? <laughs> Where a company, a company in history, had as much power as much power as like Facebook or Google. Give me a century. Sixteen hundreds. The Catholic Church. I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, yeah, I wasn't considering the church. They're not a company. I know the Dutch East India Trading oh, Company. Oh, interesting. And this is—I looked up a little bit and went down a Wikipedia <laughs> nerd hole for a second. I thought in my head like East India Trading Company, like from school or something. But here's the thing about them: in the 1600s, multiple historians say they were the largest company in the world, like wow. that has ever existed. If you figure this out economy-wise, like bigger than the current Google right now. Wow. They set up trading posts all across the world because this is the area of ships. They're going to like China. We're not sure where where the new world is yet, right? They had a legal right to wage war 
Really? To imprison, to negotiate treaties. They had 40 warships and a private army of 10,000 men. Wow. And they controlled parts of the world. You would go to the company for protection. Interesting. Not necessarily a government. So they were a big trade company. They were the Google Facebook of the time. If Mikhailo was alive in that time, he would have asked the Dutch East India Trading Company for help. And that's what he did when he asked Tim Cook. Right. So, I mean, that's some of the Ukraine story so far. I know we got to think about, like, war and is it right or wrong, this kind of stuff. But I figure for a second we can get into what the heck do you do when you're trying to cyber attack somebody anyway? What kinds of attacks are we talking about? So I can explain a couple of things, but... I was thinking about growing up in the military. You remember I grew up in the military? Yeah. We lived in Japan in Mm -hmm. high school Mm -hmm. on Marine Corps bases. Okay. And so I was surrounded by military, like everywhere, man. Kadena Air Base was over there. The main Marine Corps base is Foster Marine Corps Base. And Fatinma was the name of the Marine Corps Air Base because there's all these different military things. Okay. And you get really used to just things of war, war technology being all around you. Hmm. And like a lot of guys when I was like young, like 14 or something, I was like, fighter jets are cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember driving near Fatima Air Base and you'd see hangars off in the distance. They were just, they had fighter jets in each hangar. They weren't like indoor hangars. They weren't hidden. They were like staged ready to take off. So it was almost like they were in carports or something, right? Okay. And there was a big swept wing fighter jet just sitting there in like the dark silhouette, like Top Gun looking. And they'd be in a row of like eight of them. And I remember thinking, those are so cool. And the one I loved was was actually um, like, oh gosh, I got to remember. It was called a Harrier. It was a jump jet. Okay. Like the, the jet engines can aim down at the ground and it goes straight up. Oh, really? Or it can land, I guess. I guess, I guess it has to take off on a runway, but then it can okay. land down. They were called V-stall aircraft. I don't know. I was into that stuff. Then. Oh, I, you know, I think I saw one at the Chicago Air and Water Show a oh, couple really? of years ago. Yeah. They're incredible. They are the, incredible. Um, F-35s maybe is right too. You know, back in the day, growing up in the military, this is what you're into. And huh. I think they were cool, but they're weapons of war, right? Right. This is how you attack right. things. And that's what we envision when we envision war and the beginning is a war. We envision bombs exploding and we envision yeah, jets, jets flying over tanks. top and tanks driving in. Right. So the whole digital war, cyber war, I guess cyber war, cyber, is <laughs> is is different, right? So like, what are some kinds of attacks? What are the jets and the bombs of this kind of thing? One of them is just like, it's a really standard, like a brute force attack. We sort of try to break into a system mm-hmm. by like maybe breaking a password, but you have a computer try to break the other computer. So you, you try like just running passwords okay. like over and over and over. And there's all these things set up to stop that, right? Like a lot of times, every time it tells you like you've had three attempts and you can't do it right. anymore. Right. That's actually supposed to be stopping other computers not just you now you hate it and yeah right off. <laughs> but that's brute force attacks but they do brute force attacks on other things not just typing in passwords but apis right mm-hmm. apis are application program interfaces there are ways that websites and databases talk to each other well you can brute force one of those sending things over and over and over till you break into it to get into databases another one is called a ddos attack a distributed denial of service attack it's okay. like where you take one computer sitting on the network. What kind of things do we attack? It's like government computer systems, government websites, command and control systems, but it also could be journalism and newspaper websites, press websites. Yeah. It could be like power grid yep. kind of computers, like going to control the power system. It could mm-hmm. be like healthcare systems, these kind of things. Right. All of these have happened too, right? Right. Like Kiev in 2015 and 2016 lost power because their grid was hacked. 
yes. by ostensibly Russian forces. Right. I'll just plug another podcast that I listen to called The Lazarus Heist. Oh, what is it? They go through how North Korea hacked, I think it was Indonesia, and stole billions of dollars. And it was, you know, an act of war, but it wasn't treated like an act of war. Anyways, it's like a 10 episode thing, but it okay. it goes into the sort of the nerdy side, yeah, but it's really right. interesting, reported by some BBC reporters. And so if you are interested, go check it out. But they talk about DDoS. They talk about ransomware. Okay, well, I need to go listen to that. Yeah. I've never personally launched a DDoS attack. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a denial of service is when you just sort of like overwhelm a computer. So, you know, the internet talks to each other through these pings. And a ping is just me from my IP address, which is my address to your IP address, going, are you there? And yeah. you say back to me, yes. <laughs> and computers on the internet do that millions of times a second. Mm. But one computer can't handle it if everyone is trying to say that at once. If right. like two people tried to talk to me at once, fine. If 10 people tried to talk to me at once, fine. Right. If 100 people tried to talk to me at once, I can't answer them all. If 1,000 people try to talk to me at once, I'm going to maybe shut down. My brain gets right. overloaded. So a really valuable computer that maybe has information that yes. people are using on a regular basis, right. it can get shut down when you have all these pings all at the same time so that no one can use it. And distributed in denial of service attack means that you have a network of computers that are doing this. So it's coming mm-hmm. from every yeah. direction. And so this will shut down a computer. So if Ukraine has a set of computers that are really important to functioning the government, Russia could enlist all these computers from around the world or from their own country and attack those specific computers and prevent the Ukraine from using those computers to do the business they need to do. Right. In order to do this, a lot of times you somehow create your own bot network, meaning you might have a virus that gets out there you might have your own computers, but you might also try to covertly right. use other people's computers to do that same right. attack. They don't even know it is doing that attack. Right. And right. so individuals, even people like you and I, if our computer gets hacked, it may not be because they're trying to attack us. It may be because they're trying to enlist our computers to right. Right. be a part of that DDoS. Yeah, you start becoming part of the drone wars or the clone wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't even know you're doing it, but you're sort of attacking something else. The other big ones, you know, one that I have specific experience with is a ransomware attack. Because you did this? Come clean, Chris. (laughs) No, I got attacked. Really? So I used to work for a national Christian nonprofit. Okay. And we got attacked by a ransomware attack where one day I walked in and one of our IT people said one of our servers has been completely encrypted and locked down. Oh, wow. And what this means is someone got into it somehow from the outside and they installed a program that encrypts it. Like, right. Uh, so they, they basically kidnap all the files. 100%. And they use a password that you can't break. And they say all your hard drives on this server are encrypted, all the records. Right. And the only way to get out of this is for you to pay me money. Right. And so we got the hostage note. Wow. They sent us the note saying you need to send this money. Like, was it with the little magazine cutout letters (laughs) pasted on the piece of paper? Nope. Right. We got like an email essentially. Wow. And it said like, you need to pay this money and then we'll decrypt this thing. Right. And fortunately, we were a national Christian ministry, but it's like we had IT folks that needed to know what they were doing. And let's be honest, IT folks at Christian ministries don't get paid as much as the <laughs> right. ones that work for Google and Facebook by a long shot. Yeah, right. But um, we had a couple of good folks that knew what they were doing and we had done the correct backup. So we were actually like, forget this. But we had no donor data on that server and we also had a good backup of it. So we actually immediately deleted the whole server, wiped it out and reinstalled the server right. and it got rid of the ransomware attack and we never had to pay anything. Yeah. But 
this is happening, not yeah. just the governments, but even to like Christian nonprofits. And this is the kind of thing that Ukraine or Russia could be using against each other as well. Mm-hmm. And one other really big one, have you heard of this, the SQL injection attack? I have not. It's a thing that databases are all over the internet, right? Everything runs on a database. And SQL is the programming language that almost all databases use. Okay. And an SQL injection is where you send a command to the database, and the database doesn't know it's a command, and suddenly executes a demand, like, open all the gates, and it does that, <laughs> and I had no idea it was doing it. So you were able to inject a command secretly, and the database sort of gets hacked. And it's basically a Jedi mind trick. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to like sort of say, what are the bombs? How do people actually do these attacks? Yeah. And these are part of it. So I was looking up, like, when did like cyber hacking sort of start? You know, like, and how long have we been doing this? Because it's obviously gotten really sophisticated. Right. Yeah. I mean, we really started to hear about it within the last 10 years with a, a few more cyber attacks. You know, the U.S. was attacked by China back in 2013, right? if not earlier, in 2013 was the first time that a nation state was named as the attacker in a cyber conflict. Yeah, right. Exactly. Originally, when the internet was getting all founded, we were all like, this is fun. <laughs> I actually found Foreign Affairs Magazine, which had a whole history of cyber attack. Nerdy. Yeah. Whatever. They said like, the first known cyber attack was back in 1988. It's always earlier than you expect. It was literally, it was a grad student. <laughs> So you can't trust academics. Yeah. His name was Robert Morris and his viruses became known as the Morris worm, which is oh, sort of man. funny. But, you know, then we like we get it. You know, President Obama, he actually warns of cyber attacks in 2009. But you're right. I think 2013 is the first time like China sort of does this attack. Right. I was looking this up. Do you remember when North Korea hacked Sony Pictures? Yes. So that's part of this episode. <laughs> oh, really? The Lazarus Heist. That's where they kind of start. There was a movie about the assassination of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the president of North Korea. And it made them look bad and so somehow they... Yeah, <laughs> so the, they hacked the Sony Pictures. They <laughs> Which, were mad though. Like, they were mad, but what was interesting, that was the first chance President Obama publicly replied and actually did physical sanctions. So it was the first time ever that there was an imposed response mm-hmm. in the physical world right. to a cyber attack, which right. is just 2014. Right. But then China comes back and attacks the U.S. again in 2015. And this one's really interesting. I didn't remember this till I read it. They actually stole 4 million employee records of all federal employees from the U.S. Office of personnel management. That's crazy. I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, what's really interesting is like, we really didn't do anything public. Obama actually, it turns out, went and confronted Xi Jinping, the president of China. Uh-huh. And, and he's like, I won't publicly attribute this to you. Right. If you stop. Right. And he did. He's, right. The attack suddenly stopped and they didn't actually form it. The US didn't formally accuse China of it. But I mean, That's it's really like, it's getting into this world where like, are attacks sort of invisible? Mm-hmm. Are they real or are they not real? Right. Like they're happening, but we're sort of pretending in the real world that's not happening. But yeah. be behind closed doors, we're sort of doing it. Yeah, it's it's we have to get over this mental hurdle of thinking that data, because it's invisible, because it's weightless, that it is immaterial. It's not. It is very important. I mean, if China were to physically come into the U.S. and steal 4 million documents... Yeah, yeah. If if someone literally went in and like went to a file cabinet and stole them or something, we would be like, it'd be a huge story. And this was, I think it was reported widely by the press. The interesting thing is like back in 2013, remember Edward Snowden? Right. That he revealed that the U.S. was actually spying on U.S. citizens and stuff, and we were all worried about the privacy implications. But the other thing he said, do you remember this? That he said that the U.S. turned out was spying on Germany, on France, and all our allies around the world. Right, right, right. I mean, we 
talk like very u.s centric like all china and russia are the bad ones but at that point u.s uh, is doing the same thing the u.s became like persona number one in the world like other countries like the u.s is is actually the one doing cyber hacks yeah absolutely and even though we're based in the u.s we might talk big game about china but the reality is we do need to call to account our own government as well and one other big thing that the u.s did while we're on that just pretty recently i saw this news came out the national security agency had created this ransomware software a specific weapon called eternal blue have you heard about this i haven't no and it's so good and paralyzing a computer system that i mean it was like created by us for potential use almost like our little the u.s the u.s created we created this secretly the nsa created this okay but it got stolen by a russian group called the shadow brokers the shadow brokers they stole it they posted this this weapon to the internet so oh wow anyone could have it and it turns out a bunch of the most recent attacks like in 2017 north korea attacked britain and huh. they used the u.s's weapon eternal blue to shut down the right. national health service there also in this podcast oh really their attack of the nhs yeah so the U.S. has actually sort of done it to ourselves in some ways. We've right. created things, and then it's gotten passed around. What you're saying is, you know, we create a fighter jet, or we create bombs and missiles, and yeah, right. these things get stolen, right? and then they're actually made available for anyone who wants to use them right. around the world. Yeah, or anyone that can get their hands on them. And know, knows how to use the bomb without blowing themselves up in the process. To be honest, I feel like that's going to get us into what a lot of Christian theologians have said about war, which is that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. <laughs> I don't think it was theologians who said that. I think it started with Jesus. Well, that's, that's what I meant. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So, Adam, we're not going to be able to talk about digital war unless I knew we'd have to get into the ethics of war, which is a very small topic in the history of church. <laughs> the church has not spent much time thinking about this. You're oh, right. my gosh. It's so much. And so, like, I know we can only touch on it. But, I mean, I think the big questions are, like, is war ever right? From a Christian wrongs and rights perspective, which we talk about, you know, like, is right. can you ever have a war that's a good thing or a bad thing? And all, I know all sorts of theologians have written on this and worked on this. There's scripture texts on it. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think where in scripture might they talk about the ethics of war. Obviously, the Old Testament is full of all sorts of battles. 100%. And it presents us with this question in some uncomfortable ways. I went to an Old Testament professor say, I wish I could put the book of Joshua in a box. Really? Because he's like, it's so different. He yeah. felt like than other so things where, where it feels like God is ordering Israel to kill oh, everybody. Yeah. Interesting. And the person that came to mind for me, and it connects for me into the questions around cybersecurity, is Nehemiah. Oh, interesting. Nehemiah, he's the governor of Jerusalem, and he has initiated building a wall, which is a sort of security effort, a wall around Jerusalem. But in the process, as they're making the efforts to build the wall, 
they're actually in danger of being attacked just for trying to build the wall. Oh, right, right, right. And yeah, so Nehemiah this. has to develop sort of a defense strategy to protect the people who are building the wall. And in the process, you know, there are Jews living near the enemy outside the wall and they're reporting to him, hey, these people want to attack us. What are you going to do about it? Right. This is all in Nehemiah 4. And Nehemiah is sort of reflecting on his response and how he responded. He says, I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall. So he had kind of this analysis. Okay, okay. the lowest parts are where people are going to get in. That's our biggest vulnerability. So let's place guards there and we'll protect them until we can have the wall built. And then he has sort of a strategy for responding to the threat. He's like, if you ever hear the blast of a trumpet, rush to where you hear it sounding and help us defend the wall because that's where we're being attacked. So it's kind of, let's pull all our resources to the site of the attack. And then later, he's developing ways to deter attacks. He's developing ways to watch for the attacks. He has half the men who are always on guard. They're carrying weapons at all times. He keeps, as he's going around, he keeps a trumpeter with him as a means of communication to call people to alarm and let them know that, hey, this attack is happening. Here's a communication plan for fending off the attack. You know, if it's a DDoS attack, if they're coming from all (laughs) angles, you know, sound all the alarms, right? Right, right, right. No, this is really fascinating. I haven't read this in so long. But he doesn't attack, right? He defends. You're right. He doesn't attack. But he says some interesting things in this passage. For example, he says, so we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Yeah, right. So there's this notion there that he is not just putting it in the hands of God and not just saying it's all on me. He's actually saying it's both. Yeah, it's like trust God. Trust God and have your defense ready. Right. And and later he says, remember the Lord and fight for your families and your homes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So for him, there's this both and mentality. Right. He sees faith and fighting not as contradictory, but as complementary. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. a passage like that really challenges me to sort of ask that question. Okay, in scripture, there is this notion that we have freedom to defend ourselves, but we also put our lives in the hands of God. And now theologians have had to work through not only Nehemiah, but the whole Old Testament to struggle through that and figure out what does war look like? How can it be just? And you sort of have different positions on this. Probably one of the most famous one is called just war theory. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of this idea that war can happen, but it usually should be defensive. Okay. Like sort of maybe like what you're saying with Nehemiah. And you've got to have these different ethical checkboxes, right? Like it's a good cause. You're trying to protect innocent people, you know, or it has a competent authority. Like there's legitimate authority, like a state or, you know. Okay. Not anyone can just run out and like start shooting people. You have to have the right intention, which is like your ultimate goal is not war, but peace. So like you're doing this violent action in order to get to a place, like to shut something down, right? Yeah. And it should be the last resort is one Mm. of the other Mm. big qualifications. Mm. Like you try other things. Like what you hear this a lot when we watch the news like did they try diplomacy before going to war right it makes me think a little bit of matthew 18 and that may be a passage yeah, that yeah. people use you know this idea of okay you're going to go to the person first if you have a conflict with them and then you're going to bring in other people but the goal is resolution the goal is peace right but in the process okay how are we moving towards that restored relationship and not just an ongoing conflict perpetuating that yeah yeah there's a whole nother camp the Christian pacifist camp. And 
I'm going to be honest, I grew up in the military, and then I was in ROTC, actually, and I, I was planning to go into the military. And then I, I wound up not going into the military because, actually, my eyes were actually sort of bad. I needed such thick contact lenses oh, that I, I got disqualified oh. after my first year of college. And right now, I look back at that as a blessing because I'm in a very different place now. I actually am in this other camp, which sort of says, no, none of this is any good. Like, hmm. any time you pick up a weapon, you're just sort of defeated by that same weapon. Right. That even though you could have good intentions, the violence of war is always going to permeate it so much that it's going to create a greater evil, right? The most famous, probably one of the most famous theologians in that world is, is Stanley Hauerwas. He's the one that wrote the book, The Peaceable Kingdom, which is his ethics. He's a very famous ethicist. But he says the centrality of nonviolence is like the hallmark of the Christian life. He's like, okay. it's not just one implication among others. You can sort of figure it out from Christian beliefs. He's like, it's the very heart of our understanding of God. And his whole thing is like the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm sure he says it like this, but my way of saying it is like the death of Jesus is the death of death. Okay. Right? Like yeah. Jesus kills death. When he enters the cross, enters violence, is killed, and that in the resurrection is God's answer to the killing and the war. Right. It's a very illogical answer. Like in our world, in our way of thinking, mm. we're mm. going to be like, well, to stop it, you got to have a Messiah who's a military leader who jumps up and stops the Romans, right? Right. right. Jesus, aren't you going to like confront this? His right. disciples think. Right. But Jesus says, Peter, put down your sword. Right. And Jesus, like a lamb to the slaughter, goes in very illogically, it makes no sense, goes and suddenly lets himself be killed to conquer yeah. this instead yeah. of conquering it with violence. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of way of talking about looking at the Bible and thinking through that really started winning me over mm. of like looking at like Jesus's way of using power is not the way that we think of the way you use power. Mm. Yeah. And I've slowly become convinced that all war all use of power in a violent way is not the Christian way of doing it. Yeah, it makes me wonder, you know, if we truly believe in the resurrection, do we give our bodies over to the threats that we face because the resurrection is real and it's truly the answer to violence rather than our own pursuit of power? Even for a good cause, the pursuit itself deforms us. I heard a theologian talking about just war theory and he framed it in the context of discipleship, okay. which I found really surprising. Yeah, right. I, I, I struggled to like, okay, how is war a method of discipleship? And again, it's how might we be restored to one another? How might the Russians and the Ukrainians be restored to one another in a context of peace? And can war accomplish that? You know, you're saying no. And I can see that perspective in the sense that like when we begin to fight with one another, it shapes us. And I think about even drone warfare and drone pilots, the PTSD that they go through. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like sitting in New Mexico, yeah. but they're flying in Afghanistan and right. they can barely handle it. Right. And and they're, they're formed internally by this work that they're doing. And that makes me then, okay, let's go into the cyber angle and say, okay, how is this? forming the people who are participating in cyber attacks and right. in cyber warfare. And we've talked about cyber warfare a lot, but how might we also think about cyber peace? I think someone that would agree with you. Well, this is actually a fascinating voice from left field. Jacques Ellul. Yes. Our favorite. Our, our favorite friend, well, Jacques Ellul, the, the anarchist. <laughs> you actually mentioned him in your in your interview with Tony Renke in the last episode, because you know we think of him as the pessimist that he writes a lot about technology right. and he was a Christian about the 
techniques and how bad they are. He writes a different book, did you know this, on war. He writes a book called Violence, Reflections from a Christian Perspective back in 1969. He is French, and it's near the end of his life. But he grew up in war. He grew up in World War I when he was a kid, wow. the Spanish Civil War, and in World War II, Nazis occupied like Bordeaux, like like where wine comes from. <laughs> the region of Bordeaux. Yeah, that's where he lived nearby. And like, so violence and war for him was not like a theory. It was like something that he lived through a ton of things. And he had friends that fought and people that yeah, died. Yeah, he witnessed it. And he winds up writing this really pretty strong thing about how violence begets violence. And he sort of said there is no war that can end all wars. Yeah. That doesn't exist. Hmm. That once you start violence, you cannot stop it. Hmm. Hmm. It continues going. Hmm. And in the other thing he said about just war is that everyone tries to justify their war, <laughs> which is like a really important, he's like, everyone yeah. does that. Yeah. Everyone comes up with a reason why this is right. Yeah. Even Putin right now is telling everybody why this is right. And for yeah. us, it looks really crazy, but a lot of people are actually with him on that. And he may be truly convinced that he's right. Yeah. So can we take any of this theology of just war or Christian pacifism and apply it to digital things? Is there a Christian theology of digital cyber attacks <laughs> and are digital attacks equivalent to physical attacks? When we started talking about this episode, the first place my mind went was cyberbullying. Oh, funny. Because cyberbullying is its own form of violence, and it has its own forms of real consequences. I remember, you know, being in sixth grade, I got bullied. It was like a physical bullying. Oh, okay. And I still think about it. Hmm. And I still think about how has it shaped how I perceive myself, the confidence I have in the world, the trust I have of other people. All sorts of things. We're getting deep here. But hmm. cyberbullying has real consequences. Are they the same as being confronted by a physical bully and having your physical well-being threatened? Maybe not. But it does have psychological ramifications. It does have real outcomes. Well, yeah. I think you remember maybe in one episode a long time ago, I told a story about a girl in St. Louis in junior high. I had another classmate call her names, intense things, and she wound up committing suicide. Are online things real? Yes, they're yes. real. Words matter. Yeah. And to say, is a physical attack equivalent to a virtual or digital attack? We can recognize that both have real implications. And just because it's not a physical attack doesn't mean it doesn't have real world consequences. And so thinking about a cyber war has real consequences and deserves real criticism and critique. And yeah, we should think about how do we promote cyber peace rather than cyber war. It feels like invisible though, right? You know, yeah. I was thinking about like the coverage of the war that I was watching on TV, you know, and all these news reports start with a location, okay, a place. They're like, I'm in Maropol, right? right? Or Kharkiv is getting bombed today. And like, mm -hmm. there's a guy wearing like a bulletproof vest right. and he's standing out on this street and he's like showing us a place and digital war feels placeless. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And then like you see the bodies, like the violence done to bodies. Yeah. And I was talking about the bodies on the street, but digital war doesn't feel like there's bodies, right? Yeah. Like some hacking could actually cause physical violence. You mentioned like the power bidding shut down. I think that was during Ukraine's winter. Right. And so people were freezing and like it had a physical consequence or right. I've heard we're worried about like Iran hacking nuclear power plants and maybe causing a nuclear implosion, right? You yeah. know, and that would yeah. actually kill people. But, but a lot of hacking, when we're talking about this digital, 
you know, SQL injection hacking <laughs> doesn't feel quite as violent. Like, is it the same thing or is it less violent? I guess, you know, even our government was treating it not as, as right. real. Right. It's not real till the tanks cross. Right. I mean, you know, Jesus says those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Like those who live by the cyber attack will die by the cyber attack. So China stole 4 million documents from the U.S. I I would imagine that the U.S. has tried, if not succeeded, in attacking China and stealing some of their secrets. You know, and so there's an equality between the two. And which is just worth it. You're supposed to do things in proportion. (laughs) Yeah. And I can appreciate that. I think like you were saying, every retaliation escalates a little bit more. You know, it's not pursuing justice, it's pursuing revenge. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily have the same consequences as physical bombs and missiles and tanks, but it can still be a meaningful form of violence in the same way that calling someone names is a form of violence. You know, that word violence is interesting. I mean, I looked it up in the dictionary and it said usually defined as physical force. Uh You know, the definition of violence was physical, but I feel like people are using that more widely now, right? Like they're not always meaning physical. They're also meaning... Right. Psychological. Right. Or maybe a definition is force against someone's will. Sure. Yeah. But... I was reading this story of this 2013 meeting between like some Russians and the U.S. people. Okay. And there was a general, a Russian general, and realize this is way before all the current Russian stuff, you know, General Nikolai somebody. This is 2013, so three years before the 2016 election. Right, right. But uh, he's like, you guys set up, because we finally eventually, you know, set up all these different offices for cybersecurity. And the big one now is called CISA, I think, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. But he was taunting us and saying, you guys set up a digital war office that didn't have an information office. He quoted, one uses information to destroy nations, not networks. Hmm. And I was like, oh, fascinating. He's like, all the different kind of attacks we've talked about Mm -hmm. aren't as important as like the social media. Yeah, that is interesting. In my research for this episode, someone made the comment that when a war begins, all information about the war becomes propaganda. Oh, yeah. And on both sides. On both sides. Yeah. No, it's only the other guy's sides that's propaganda. (laughs) Right. You know, when I think about propaganda, I think from the West, there is this idea that, man, only the Third Reich they use propaganda. Yeah, the Nazis. To lead all these sheep into these terrible ways. And, oh, the Russians, they have propaganda and are brainwashing all of their citizens. And is it naive to think that the U.S. doesn't use information as propaganda? Right. It's a weird thought. It is a weird thought. Very easy to go like, oh, Russia does that, but we don't have that here. And it moves us into that fake news, disinformation, misinformation question that we've sure, talked sure, about a lot. Right. You know, but we're fish in the water. How do we see beyond our own news fishbowl right. to recognize that? It makes me think that, so the just war theory or these kind of things aren't, for a digital age, they're actually not the full picture of like how you think about the rights and wrongs of war because mm-hmm. now we've got to think about communications and is violence being done by lies, by social media ads on Facebook yeah, yeah. that blame shift or that sort of rally people to a cause that isn't there. It's not a necessarily even about what's violent, or what's a good cause for war. It's about what's true. Right. A just truth theory. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah. When words are your weapons of war, lies become your method of violence. Yeah. 
I don't know. That makes my mind boggle because then you try and think your way out of that and <laughs> your eyes are glazing over. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It, it takes you into those questions of how do I discern what's real when I'm in a fishbowl? I think part of what makes digital technology so powerful is that it has tied words to actions in a way that functions a little bit differently than it has in the past. You know, we now can deploy a programming language to shut down the power grid of Mm. a city. Mm -hmm. And that programming language is a language you learn, but then you deploy it for whatever purposes you have, both good and bad. And those words take on a new kind of power, but it's not power that we haven't experienced in the past. I mean, in an oral culture, the power Mm. of a storyteller to frame a situation has had immense power. That storyteller is considered to have immense power because they tell a story with their words. They call down, you know, I think of the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal calling down Hmm. lightning from heaven. Hmm. And, you know, they have this perceived power in their words and the prophets of Baal, their words don't affect anything. And the words of Elijah are connected to a God who has power over all of creation. Kevin Van Hooser, the theologian, used to remind us that words create worlds. Mm. Yeah. And that sounds like that's what's happening. And I love that. I like think you're right. Like the words in action start meeting in this digital world, meet to where they're almost the same thing. I even think about in democracies, and maybe we don't think about Russia as really much of a democracy right now, but Russia gets that you have to have the support of all the people, I guess. And even the military and technologies are not independent of the people that are in or around them in the country. So if you can convince a large number of the people of something, you actually are harnessing the technologies in the process, right? Mm -hmm. So Putin has successfully convinced, it sounds like from reports of a large percentage of Russia, that what he's doing is just. And we think it sounds unjust, but they're still supportive of him. If I think if 80% of Russia actually thought Putin was out of control, he might be able to hold on to it for a little bit by like locking the door and locking the nuclear codes or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, he's going to lose power very quickly. The soldiers will stop driving their tanks if they all believe that they shouldn't go there. Yeah, right. And so these words that create worlds are the power that can stop the tank. Mm. And Ukraine is trying to do that now. They talked about one of the things that Mikhailo's Ministry of Information is trying to do is he's broadcasting in Russian. And apparently most Ukrainians speak Russian and Ukrainians very related, but they're broadcasting things to Russian soldiers to say, this is not a fight you need to be in. We're like family. And if they can win that mind game, if the words can create worlds, they will stop the tanks and the bombs because the Mm -hmm. people that are operating the tanks and the bombs won't want to do it. Right, right. Yeah, Ukraine, you know, successfully recruited 300,000 volunteers of various kinds. They also... Rec- Including social media marketers, right, not they, just and, and hackers. They, right. They also had another Telegram channel for 200 Instagram influencers. Oh, right. Who themselves had millions of followers. Yes. And they shifted their normal content from, hey, here are five skincare tips to, hey, I'm sheltering in a bomb shelter. And that stark transition of their content can powerfully shape the imaginations and shape the perceptions and understanding that their followers have of what's going on. And Ukraine, it seems, at least in the West, 
certainly got out ahead of that information game that yeah, information absolutely. strategy right. to really shape the narrative to the point where he's speaking on like video to the U S Congress. Right. Right. You know, and like the world he's addressing the world. They set up all these video conference calls and like, he became a darling of the world, Zelensky, and this is all by Mikhailo's sort of work. One, the the perception of a lot of the world is like, this is real unjust and we're going to help. Right, right. Yeah. And again, there's that moment where he says, I don't need a ride. I need weapons. I don't yeah. need a ride out of Ukraine. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I need weapons to fight our war. And yeah. that was a big narrative. But again, that's shaping the narrative. It is, in a sense, propaganda. Even if it's true, it functions as propaganda to present a, a certain persona, present a certain posture towards Russia, towards the war, and that has power. And we saw that power in the way that NATO and Western countries took lightning-fast action to impose economic sanctions on Russia in unprecedented time. Right. It took them a year to impose sanctions when they invaded Crimea. And it took them less than a week to impose even harsher sanctions this time. And I think part of that is that belief around the narrative that Ukraine successfully presented. When I think about the whole information war thing and then try to go back to that question we have of like, how do we think about the way the church has taught about war and can we apply it to digital war now? In Elul saying violence begets violence and once you start war, you can't stop. When I think about the information, it's like once you start lying, you can't stop. Like lies <laughs> beget lies. Uh. And I can see the same patterns in false communication and propaganda yeah. that I can see that are being accused from many pastors and leaders that advocate for, say, the violence. Like Jesus says to Peter, put down your sword, don't use that. And also looks in sorrow at Peter when he lies about being with him. Right? <laughs> Maybe that's a too much of a stretch on the analogy. But if we need to reconstruct a Christian theology of what it leads to live in a digital violence world, truth telling has to be part of it. Mm -hmm. And I go back to Jesus' death and resurrection, where I look at the upturning of power. Not only did he enter death, but in the face of an empire where the story was, the words that created worlds was Caesar is Lord. We have the Pax Romana, the peace of the empire, and we're the greatest empire ever. He gets nailed to a cross and dies and turns the story that shakes down the empire that says, no, this is a different story of power and this is a different story of yep. peace. And the gospel winds up being a message through the power of a true resurrection, but the gospel is the euangelion, the good news, which tells the truth <laughs> yep. about empire. I guess I haven't thought about it that way before, but now I'm excited about that. Well, Chris, like any number of our other episodes, this one leaves me with just as many questions as I started with. Maybe maybe slightly different questions. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. You mean we didn't solve like the whether or not just war is a war? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm still trying to get out of the the propaganda vortex that may be the United States. Or, or uh, me. Maybe, maybe I'm just putting you in a propaganda vortex. <laughs> and, and falling into the question that Pilate asked Jesus, what mm -hmm. is truth? And yet I sense the hope of Jesus saying, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Oh. And I hold on to that hope somehow trusting that I can grasp my way along to God and to that truth, even in spite of the fishbowl that we live in. Well, then in the absence of solving it, we're praying for Ukraine and praying for Russia. 
not only the the physical violence ends, but that the cyber violence it ends in that truth telling wins out wins. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. All right, Chris, are you doing it? Am I, I doing it? I should do it, but I don't know what we're doing. Well, Adam, it's time for vice or virtue. Oh, wait, that's not our song. <laughs> I read recently that that's like Calypso music. Government websites. <laughs> the worst technology known to man. Oh, man. Government <laughs> but everyone's hacking the them, apparently, and they're very high-value <laughs> targets, except, uh, like, they're all ugly. <laughs> yeah, they really are all ugly. And uh, Yeah, I mean, you could you could deface a website, and it would probably look better. <laughs> That's the reality <laughs> of it. Seriously. Oh, man. Well, my thing is, like, when Mikhailo is done with this, can he come to the U.S. and actually, like, make us, like, digital driver IDs? Yeah, in- right? <laughs> Can, I mean, can we... Like, why can't we? Why? Oh, please. Take over the passport office. Please help us. Please help us. We need a digital transformation. <laughs> I mean, so obviously they're a vice. I, I did my taxes on them this year and it was... I mean, for as much as I paid, I could have paid for a lot better website. Let's put it that way. Oh gosh, yeah, taxes. Okay, I'm sitting here actually trying to think of any virtue <laughs> that I could do for a government website just to contradict you. <laughs> I like to think of like, Fair. what's a website Fair. that I've used? Like the city of Chicago website I've used for things. Like there's bike lane websites. <laughs> there's uh, the state of Illinois website, but with almost no fail, every website has been <laughs> it really is <laughs> terrible, outdated, has the wrong information. Gosh. You can try, man. You can try. It's The only thing I'll say is, that, and this is barely the same, but... Remember they were talking about vaccine passports and we had to get a vaccine. Eventually, like they got iPhones to work to yeah. link to the state of Illinois database so you yeah, could show right. on your iPhone th- with the QR code and the official thing that you actually had a vaccine. I liked that. That was good. The problem is Apple did almost all that work and just <laughs> right. went to the states and it's like, do you want this technology? And they're like, thank right. you. We have no idea. So, <laughs> so it doesn't, doesn't even count. You're right. Government websites are a vice. Just <laughs> they just are. There's no way out of it. We're sorry, the state of Illinois. Please hack them, keep them down, and we'll figure out something else. <laughs> uh, and now the FBI will be showing up to your house. <laughs> wow. Virtual war, digital war, cyber war, whichever kind of war you want to describe it as, it's complicated. All of them struggle to be a just war. Yeah, good first attempt on us stabbing at this. Oh, man. <laughs> that was a really violent analogy. Uh, so. uh. <laughs>